0: And we want everybody to be able to follow along, so we have Bibles. Len and Larry and Aaron have some. They're going to make their way down the aisles, so if you need a copy of the scriptures, get their attention. And we'll look at Hebrews chapter 2 together. I think most of you know by now that your pastor's taste in entertainment is pretty narrow. If you ask me whether I've seen something on TV, some of you have you'll know that my first question is, was that on C-SPAN? If it wasn't on C-SPAN, there's a good chance I haven't seen it. So I have to get my quotes and illustrations from the world of TV from other people. One of my seminary professors used to quote Hannibal Smith from the 80s show, The A-Team. Hannibal Smith would often say when things had gone the way he intended, I love it when a plan comes together. And we all love it when our plan comes together, don't we? But the when, we love it when the plan comes together. The when is really an if. Because the truth is, whether or not our plans come to fruition is conditional. It's conditioned on a whole host of factors, many of which are beyond our control. And so as a result, we can make great plans... But factors that are beyond our control can keep those plans from being realized. So we can plan our vacation. But all sorts of things can get in the way that we can't control. We can plan our careers. And we think we have a particular trajectory for our careers. But something happens to throw us the proverbial curveball. And it doesn't happen as we thought. We can plan our families, and we can say we would like to have X number of children. But the truth is, we don't control that either, do we? We can plan our retirement, and we're going to retire at such and such an age, and we're going to do this and that, and did you know that most people die five years after retirement? And we can't control that either. But the reason that there is the chance, the good chance, that things won't turn out as planned is because, indeed, we do not control all of the factors involved. None of us do. But just think for a moment, what if you did? What if you did control all the factors that could impinge upon your life and upon your life's plans? Then if it happened... It would not be because of circumstances beyond your control. It would be because it was part of your plan. You planned it, you control the circumstances, and because you planned it and control those circumstances, it will happen. There is someone in this universe who's like that who makes plans and whose plans are absolutely executed as designed because he does indeed control all the factors that could impinge upon it. The true and living God, the God that's described in the Bible, is a God that plans and executes without fail. And this question becomes important for the passage that we're considering today. As we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, Jesus in the first chapter has been presented as God. As God the Son. And yet as we come to chapter 2, we saw last week at the end of verse 9, it says that Jesus suffered and that he tasted death for everyone. And so how can that be? I mean, if Jesus is really who he said... He is. If he really is who he is said to be in chapter 1, then something must have gone wrong when he suffered and died, right? And the fact of the matter is, many rabbis at the time just before Jesus had come and in the time that Jesus lived and just after, they postulated, you know, there really must be two messiahs. Because the Bible does seem to speak, in the first part of the Bible that they had, that we call the Old Testament, does seem to speak of a Messiah who's going to suffer and die. But that can't really be true. Some of them had real trouble with the idea that there would be a Messiah who suffered and and died. So there must be another Messiah who's going to come and really execute God's ultimate plan of setting up his kingdom and ruling his world through human intermediaries. And so they postulated two messiahs, one that would suffer, one that would be a king. Paul said this in the New Testament. He said, we preach Christ crucified. But notice what he said about that message, a Christ who suffers and dies. It is a stumbling block, particularly a stumbling block to Jews. And the reason it's a stumbling block in particular to Jews is because they were the custodians of the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And it did indeed talk about a Messiah, one who would come, who would be a conquering king. And so you have passages in the first part of your Bible, such as Isaiah chapter 11, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice, give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Ah, the conquering king who will come. And so that's who they expected. Well, how do you fit in this idea of suffering and dying to that? Particularly since you have passages from the same prophet, Isaiah, for instance, who said in Isaiah chapter 53, in passages with which many of us are familiar, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. Familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows, and yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So you have this issue. God has a plan. And God's plan includes reigning over the world that he has made through human intermediaries. He made man to subdue and rule the earth for him. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And as we saw in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, God has this plan. But you have a Messiah, a promised one, who suffers and dies. Something must have gone wrong. Peter acknowledges the difficulty. When Peter says this of those who wrote the first part of your Bible, he says, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. They searched intently and with the greatest care, and they were trying to find out the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when? He predicted, notice, the sufferings, but also of the glories that would follow. How does that fit together? Can the suffering of God the Son really be part of the plan of God? And so those who would ask the question, something must have gone wrong, right? God's answer is, That may seem logical, but the answer is wrong. Nothing went wrong with God's plan. It was God's purpose for humanity to be crowned with glory and honor and to rule for God, subdue the earth. We saw last week that God has called us to important things, to great things, but sin causes us to settle for small things. And yet God's plan for that ruling and that subduing to occur through the mediation of the one that he would send, is still exactly going according to plan. That's why the writer of Hebrews then seeks to explain in chapter 2 and verse 10 by saying this, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, to whom... And through whom everything exists, that he should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, what's being addressed here is the question. Has something gone haywire? God has this plan. The writer of Hebrews in verses 5 through 9 has reminded us of the plan quoting Psalm number 8 from the first part of your Bible, that God has made humanity for great things. And yet he says in the midst of that passage, yet we do not see all things subjected to him, humanity, at the present. Presently we don't see that. Why? Because of sin. So has something gone wrong? Has something derailed God's plan? And now beginning in verse 10, Emphatically, the answer is no, because it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should bring many sons to glory. When he says in verse number 10, for whom and through whom everything exists, it's simply saying that this God, who has given us this plan and who is executing it, is nothing other than the sovereign God. Sovereign over everything that occurs in his world such that nothing happens by accident. It's so that the suffering and the death of Jesus was not a glitch in the program. Because God is sovereign, because he is the one for whom and through whom everything exists, then you can know that it fits with who he is. That indeed, as part of his plan, there would be one who would suffer and yes, even die. Because God is sovereign, you can know that what happened is not by chance. It may involve evil, but even that is not outside the control of a sovereign God. And we're going to see how that applies to Jesus in the passage that follows. But let me just stop for a moment here and have you consider how that applies to your life. You see, the truth is there is nothing that has happened this week. And there is nothing that will happen this coming week that is outside of the control of the one to whom, for whom, and through whom all things exist. Everything that is happening in your life, God not only knows, but God has planned. And there is no thing, nothing, Outside of God, who can impinge upon the execution, the perfect execution of his plan. And so you have asked, whether this week or this month of this year, you have asked, as I have. Is this the way it's, is it going according to plan? And God says over and over and over again, it's going exactly according to plan. And we see that most profoundly in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it was God's intention, friends. It was the plan of God that God, that man, humanity, would rule for God. And that plan would not and will not be thwarted. And so it's proper and it's consistent with who God is, that he would do what's necessary for his plan to be carried out. And the suffering and death of Jesus turns out to be necessary in order for that purpose to be achieved with the entrance of sin into the equation. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying it to this objection, did something go wrong? Did something go haywire? Is there a glitch in the program? Such that the Messiah has had to come and suffer and even die. The writer of Hebrews is saying, God is simply bringing his plan to fruition in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect man, perfect humanity. Jesus is what we were intended to be, we saw last week. God sent him to be what he intended the first Adam to be, and so the Bible calls Jesus the last Adam, our representative. And because the first Adam has has failed as our representative, Now we have in Jesus the last Adam, one who perfectly represents us before God and for God's purposes. Jesus is what we were made to be. And in him, we can become what we were made to be. And because that's true, the take home truth that I have for you in your outline is absolutely the case. Jesus is not just our Savior. He's the particular kind of Savior that we need. He had to, as we'll see, be human. He had to be like us in all points, the writer of Hebrews will say later in chapter 4, in all points like as we are and yet without sin. Jesus is the kind of Savior we need. And what kind of Savior do we need? I have three points for you in the outline. Jesus is... Our substitute. Because he's our substitute. Because God has come and become man. God and man in one unique person. The God, man, Christ, Jesus. Because that's the case. In Jesus we can become what we were originally created to be. Now notice the beginning of verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory and you'll notice the word glory in the passage that we looked at last week in verse number 9 in speaking of Jesus verse 9 says but we see Jesus though he was made a little lower than the angels as we were in our original creation as humanity he was made human like we are but we see him now crowned verse 9 with glory and with and with honor We were made to be crowned with honor and glory. But that honor and glory is not our crown now because of sin. But we look at Jesus, and Jesus is our substitute, our representative. And He is able to bring many sons to that glory that we were intended for. And so it is only when you are rightly related to Jesus... That you can achieve the glory for which you were created. In bringing many sons to glory. What glory? The glory for which we were made. The glory from which we have fallen because of sin. But the glory that Jesus has attained as the perfect man. And so verse 10 could be paraphrased. In bringing men and women to be what they were intended the glorious purpose that God has for us, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. In order to be our substitute, our representative, Then, Jesus had to become human. Become like we are. Augustine said in the 4th century, that the entire moral and spiritual history of the world revolves around two people. Those two people are Adam and Christ. The first Adam, and not just the second Adam. Sometimes we say the second Adam. I prefer the last Adam, because there won't be a third or a fourth. Two people, the first Adam. Our human representative who failed, and we failed in him. And now Christ, who is our... Divine representative our perfect Representative and mediator and so augustine says the entire moral and spiritual history of the world revolves around two people Adam and Christ all Are in Adam and all have fallen those in Christ experience eternal salvation So that Adam is the head of a people and Christ is the head of a people Adam is the head of all Christ is the head of those who come to him And so he had to become human And he had to die. And so it's fitting, verse number 10, that God, who is sovereign, would, in seeking to achieve the purpose for which humanity was made, make the author of their rescue, their salvation, their deliverance, make him perfect through suffering. Now, what does it mean when it says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? Because as we think about Jesus being perfect, of course, it does not mean that Jesus was imperfect in terms of his moral character. The Bible teaches unequivocally that Jesus was absolutely sinless. The word for perfect is the Greek word teleos, and it means to achieve a goal, to accomplish the purpose. And what the passage is saying is this, is that in order for Jesus to achieve the goal, He had to suffer in order to die, in order that the goal of reconciling men to God and thus men achieving the glory for which they were made would then be achieved. It was fitting that a sovereign God would make the author of our salvation perfect, cause him to achieve the purpose for which he was sent here and is our representative. And that is done through his suffering and his death. There's another word there that we need to know something about in verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that the sovereign God, for whom and through whom everything exists, would make, and then notice the word author, of their salvation, make him perfect through suffering. That word author is the word from which we get our word "arch." chief. And so sometimes you'll hear someone talk of an arch rival or an arch enemy. This is my first enemy. This is my chief enemy. And Jesus then is the the arch, the first, the chief, the captain, some translations say, of our salvation. And that word that's translated author or sometimes captain was used in New Testament times of one who would lead Go first in a procession toward a destination. The author of Hebrews is adamant that Jesus has gone, get this friends, Jesus has gone before us to achieve and to obtain what God made us to have. And that's why in chapter 12, we'll see if we ever get to chapter 12. In verse 2, we fix our eyes On Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the horrors of the cross. Jesus has gone before us. And so as our arch, as our captain, as the author of our salvation, Jesus is not one who is just at headquarters saying, I hope it all goes well. But Jesus has gone this way first. And so as a result, as we'll see when we conclude, Jesus has walked the path that you must walk long before you ever set your foot to it. Jesus has walked the path of suffering. And Jesus' suffering has led him and he is leading us to the destination for which God made us and for which he is now in Christ remaking us. Jesus has gone before us. Bringing many sons to glory then, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is our substitute. And as our substitute, the passage goes on to tell us some of the things that Jesus achieves. Notice verse 11. Both the one who makes men holy... And those who are made holy are of the same family. Now that phrase is simply saying that Jesus, the one who makes men holy, and those who are made holy, that would be us, that they're of humanity, they're of the human family. That Jesus was made truly human. So when it says they're of the same family, at least there, it's not talking about us being adopted into the family of God. It's simply talking about the family of humanity. Both the one who makes men holy, Jesus, and those who are in need of being made holy, are all human. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels we saw last week. Made human like we are. And as a result of that, the end of verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. We are human together. And so it's talking about humanity in general. That could be applied to anybody except that the author of Hebrews says, Those who are made holy. Out of this sea of humanity, with which Jesus has solidarity because he was truly human. Out of that, God calls a people. A people who come to Jesus and receive what Jesus has done and believe who Jesus is. And it's those people then that Jesus specifically is not ashamed to call brothers. Or to put it another way, Jesus is proud of his family. Now just think about that for a bit. Jesus is proud to have you and me in his family when we come to him. How many of you when you were kids used to have bragging sessions? And you talk about what your old man did for a living. And if you had to lie, you'd lie. You know, if you had a a doctor's kid and a lawyer's kid there, okay, make something up. My dad's a rocket scientist. Because being attached to someone is important made you proud. And Jesus is saying, that humanity was made a little lower than the angels. Humanity, as we saw last week, was made for these marvelous things. But now it's only in Jesus that those marvelous, important, glorious things can be achieved. And Jesus has come now in solidarity with us, both physically and now spiritually, when we come to Jesus such that he is proud to call us his brothers and, by extension, sisters in the same family. And he says in verse 12, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And for me, it gets, really, it gets really amazing. It's already amazing enough for me that the God of the universe would do what we have seen in the last few weeks. That he would be proud to call us his family members His brothers and sisters, despite all that we've done. I'm amazed at that alone, but now as in these next few verses we have these quotations from the first part of your Bible, it becomes all the more amazing to me. Allow me to tell you where these quotations are from. In verse 12, when it says, I'll declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. It's a quotation from Psalm 22 in the first part of your Bible. And Psalm number 22 is what is known as a messianic psalm. Of the 150 psalms that are part of the book by that name, a number of them are psalms written to predict things that would happen to the coming Messiah. And so they're called messianic psalms. Psalm 22 is one of those. And in verse 22 of Psalm 22, it says what verse 12 of Hebrews 2 says. I will declare your name to my brothers In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Psalm 22, and the very first verse, says this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've heard that before, have we not? You'll remember in John chapter 19, as Jesus hung on the cross... The suffering about which the writer of Hebrews speaks in chapter 2. That was fitting, that was necessary in order to achieve our salvation. As Jesus was going through, undergoing that suffering. He cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And that was predicted in the first part of your Bible. Psalm 22 and verse 1. Of which... The portion in verse 12 is a part. Psalm 22 goes on. But I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. This messianic psalm goes on. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. You all remember these as being prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus in the New Testament, don't you? They cast lots for his garments, all from Psalm 22. And then it's in the midst of that, that you have verse 22 of Psalm 22, quoted in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. I will declare your name to my brothers. And who are these brothers? Brothers that are of the same family? It's you and me. I, the Messiah, Jesus, will declare your name, that is your character, Father, to my brothers, who I will bring into our family. And then notice the last phrase. After I have suffered, but then have been exalted, because I will be raised from the dead, and of course that all happened, then the last part of verse 12 says, quoting Psalm 22, verse 22, in the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. In the presence of the congregation, and who's in that congregation? You are, and I am. And so one commentator says, Jesus is not only proud to have us as brothers and sisters in the family that he has allowed us to be adopted in, but Jesus is the, he called him the chief conductor of the praises given to God the Father. And he leads us, as it were, in praise to our God. But the writer of Hebrews goes on in chapter 2, verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. Now, notice that's a quote. I will put my trust in him. And that's a quotation from another part of your Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 17. Isaiah 8 and verse 17. Now, how does it fit here? What did it mean when Isaiah wrote, I will put my trust in him? Well, Isaiah chapter 8 is surrounded by Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. I had to go to seminary to get that. But you all know something about Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14? And I will give a sign, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And this will be a sign to you. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child. Give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel. Matthew 1.23 in your New Testament. Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. It's Isaiah 7. But you're familiar with Isaiah 9 as well. Again prophecies about the one who would come. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. To us a child is born. And to us, the son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. And so now this quotation, Hebrews chapter two and verse 13, I will put my trust in him from Isaiah chapter eight. It's in the midst of messianic predictions of the one who would come and it says, I will put my trust in him. It's an amazing passage because it's in the immediate context of Isaiah giving prophecies to the people of God and getting absolutely no response from them. I encourage you to read Isaiah 8 when you get time. And so Isaiah seals up the prophecy and he says this, I'll wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here's what Isaiah was saying in Isaiah 8, 17. I must depend upon God. And that's what Jesus is saying. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, I will put my trust in him. When Jesus walked the earth as as a human being, suffering as he did, ultimately dying for our sins, when Jesus did all of that, Jesus did what we must do. He must depend upon almighty God. And then thirdly, there's another quote in our passage, at the end of verse 13. And again he says, Here am I and the children that God has given me. Now where does that come from? It's the same passage in Isaiah chapter 8, it's just the next verse, Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 18. He says, Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. me." And let me just quickly give you the immediate context of Isaiah chapter 8. When Isaiah says that, here am I and the children that you have given me, Isaiah, Isaiah had two physical sons and their two names were prophetic. The name of the first son meant this, the spoil speeds and the prey hastes. And the name of the second son meant a remnant shall return. And Isaiah's name, his own name meant Yahweh, the Lord is salvation. And so in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of being surrounded by enemies, the name of this first child indicated that God's people would be victorious. The name of the second child indicated that there would be many sons, a remnant that would be preserved victorious into the future. And Isaiah's own name means that Yahweh, the Lord, is the one who delivers, rescues. Yahweh is salvation. And that picture is being applied now to Jesus and to you and me. It's as if Isaiah is standing there with his hands on his two sons and saying with full confidence before the Lord, you have given me these sons. And they represent something very important. They represent that God's people will be victorious over God's enemies. And they will be preserved into the future. And I represent Yahweh is salvation. The fact that this will all be done and only be done because of the work of the Lord God in the lives of his people. And he applies that to Jesus and you and me. It's like Jesus putting his hand around us and saying, I am the Lord who will rescue you. And you will have victory. And you will be preserved into the future, says Jesus. All because of what I have come to do in solidarity with humanity, bringing you to achieve what you were made to be. Now, as a result of all of this, two other things happen that I have in your outline. Jesus is our substitute. And if you have any word in your New Testament or any word that you want to summarize what your New Testament teaches about the gospel, the good news, it's that word, substitute. Jesus is our representative. He's our substitute. And so the Bible says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Because Jesus has been our substitute, Jesus can be, secondly, our, I say sympathizer, but you notice it's lined out, but rather our empathizer. You see, to sympathize means I can do my best to try to identify with what you're going through. But Jesus not only can sympathize, he can empathize because Jesus has walked this way first. So we have a song on a CD that our family often listens to that says this lyric, I turn to wisdom not my own for every battle you have known. My confidence will rest in you. Your love endures, and your ways are true. Every battle, Jesus has known. The suffering that Jesus endured allows him to not just sympathize, but empathize with our plight. And for sake of time, the third thing this means then, is in your outline. Jesus then is our helper. We do not have a distant God who does not know our plight, who does not care for our plight. Quite the contrary, we have one who has suffered and suffered not for his own sins because he had none, but suffered for ours. He did it to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And he is now, as Scripture calls him, a very present help in time of trouble. So, friends, I trust you have seen over these last few weeks, we have a mighty Savior in Jesus Christ. And if you are going to be what God has made you to be as a human being, you must be rightly related to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. But here's what that means. Verse number 11 in our passage said, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy. So it's a select group of humanity that Jesus is proud to call his brothers because they are now a part of his family. And they become a part of his family by coming and receiving what he did for them, that which they could not do for themselves. And so he suffered. It was fitting that he do that. And he died as your substitute on the cross in his death, in his perfectly righteous life as he walked the earth for 33 years. And all of that is applied to you when you come to Jesus and you're then adopted into his family. And then everything that this passage says about what the Messiah does for his people becomes true for you. I invite you to receive Jesus as Savior as we bow. Let's go to the Lord. Father, thank you for this precious passage that describes the work of the lord jesus for me and for us lord i acknowledge and we acknowledge that we are not worthy of the salvation that you have provided for us but lord we thank you for your mercy and your grace stooping down to become and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves perfect humanity represented in the lord jesus so that we can indeed become what we were meant to be, but only through Him. Thank you that this not only has benefits in the future, but in the here and now, in the right now. I have an identity as a child of God. I have one who empathizes with my plight, not just sympathizes, one who is a very present help in time of trouble. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you're drawing hearts to yourself right now, taking some out of the world of humanity and making them part of, The spiritual family of God will give you the glory for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.